Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, filmmaker Sarah Polly on her new book, Run Towards the Danger. Sarah Polly is an Academy Award nominated screenwriter, director and actor. After making short films, she made her feature-length directorial debut with the drama film Away From Her in 2006, for which she received an Oscar nomination for the screenplay, which was adapted from the Alice Munro story, The Bear Came Over the Mountain. Her other projects include the documentary film Stories We Tell, which won the New York Film Critics Circle Award and the National Board of Review Award for Best Documentary, and the miniseries adaptation of Margaret Atwood's novel Alias Grace, the romantic comedy Take This Waltz, and the forthcoming Women Talking. She began her acting career as a child, starring in many productions for film and television, and is now the author of a collection of essays, Run Towards the Danger, Confrontations with a Body of Memory. Sarah, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me. As I said there, the subtitle of this book is Confrontations with a Body of Memory, and the book looks at not just the unreliability, but the sort of elasticity and weirdness of memory, and that was obviously a big part of your film stories we tell, which I watched again over the weekend to refresh myself. And I just wanted to start with talking about why this is something that interests you, this idea of memory. I'm really interested in the sort of obviously interesting things about memory, you know, in terms of how our past and our childhood experiences affect how we move through the world in adulthood. But I think the project of this book was, a lot of it was looking at this sort of reverse relationship of past and present where, you know, the past and the present are in this constant dialogue with each other. And so that the present also impacts how one perceives and carries the past. Um, And that was new to me. Like, I mean, I've done decades of psychoanalysis and I'm very well acquainted with thinking about how the past affects the present, but I was less acquainted with thinking about how the present can affect your relationship with your memories. I think memory has always kind of fixated me and I think probably I'll never really have a perfect answer or be able to articulate why it has such a hold on me. I think that if you keep returning to the same material and subjects again and again, there's probably something subconscious there that hasn't been worked out and and maybe never will be. And the project is just to keep kind of going down a path with it. I mean, I think that I grew up in a family of storytellers and tall tales were told and 
you know, the difference between what a great story was and what the truth was, was always, you know, a subject of some debate. So there's always been that. I think also I probably grew up in a, an environment where occasionally like traumas or bad things that happened were minimized. Um, so sort of coming to terms with what my narrative was around there and what, what actually happened versus, you know, how something was made to seem or reframed um, was really important to look at as well. But I was, I mean, in stories we tell, I was just really interested in how whenever I would hear someone tell the story of me finding out my father wasn't my biological father and what unfolded from there, you know, it was like listening to completely different stories. If you listen to anyone in my family tell that story, there's five or six completely different stories. And what is in focus, what's most important about that story is completely different for everybody. And so I became really fascinated by that and the way we tell stories. And then you know, what was strange about writing the book was in the film, I told everyone else's version or let everybody else tell their version, but hadn't told mine. And then the book itself was really only my versions of stories. And that was, I found really complex and difficult and vulnerable. Yeah, you mentioned that it's taken you, some of these essays have taken years, in in fact, decades to write. I mean, I think these are the stories that have been hardest for me to put words to and to tell and to, and to grapple with. I think these are the stories that have sort of guided, you know, the the ones that are profound enough and pivotal enough that they're sort of guiding your life, whether you know it or not, and impacting your behavior and your choices and your present life. And the ones that I think were most difficult for me to unpack. And so, you know, run towards the danger, which was something that was actually said to me by a concussion specialist when I was recovering from a severe, long concussion. And it meant what he was telling me was basically I had to do all the things I'd been avoiding. So all the things that were triggering my symptoms that I'd stopped doing for years, being in crowded environments and exposed to too much light and multitasking and, you know, pushing myself physically, all those things that I'd been avoiding in case it triggered symptoms were things I actually had to do more of in order to train my brain back to strength, because the more I avoided those things, the harder they became for my brain to experience. So that became a paradigm shift for me. And then going into these stories felt like a form of that, like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to look at the things I've been avoiding because actually, you know, it might be the only way to be healthy. And I want to go straight to that run towards the danger, which is not only the title of the book, but the title of the last essay in the collection. And as you said, you have a, a rather unfortunate accident. So tell us, tell us what happened. Yeah, I mean, it's one of these, a lot of concussion stories are sort of stupid. <laughs> like mine is very stupid. So I was rummaging around in a lost and found bin looking for a blow dryer. And I had a really large sort of industrial sized fire extinguisher get dislodged as I stood up by my shoulder, I think, or, or fell off somehow the wall onto my head. And, you know, I had sort of typical symptoms, concussion symptoms, which got worse and worse. And we're also exacerbated by some of the advice I got, which was, you know, lie in a dark room for three weeks, don't do anything, don't push yourself, don't, you know, engage in life, basically, which, you know, we sort of know now, or medical professionals tend to talk now about the fact that that actually exacerbates these symptoms, because you get a whole host of other problems, including anxiety about stimulus. So my concussion was really severe for the first sort of you know, eight or nine months. And then I never really got back to normal in, in the three and a half years that followed. Like I, I could do only so much. I really sort of titrated my days to match what I thought I could handle. And I was, 
you know, had sort of accepted this very low ceiling of how much I could function. Um, and I had better periods than others if I was managing how much stimulus I had and was really playing below the radar. And then at about three-year mark, uh, I had a really uh, intense period after my third child was born and um, my husband was commuting to work and, you know, gone for half the week. And I was alone a lot and it was just suddenly too much stimulus and too little sleep. And my concussion symptoms just came back with a vengeance. And I got to that point where I was not very functional again. And then I finally found this treatment in Pittsburgh at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. You know, after trying everything, I went to this center because I'd seen somebody I knew well with a concussion get completely better after four years. And in about six weeks after this program where, you know, it's a very specific program that also involves vestibular exercises and, you know, physical exercises, and also this kind of exposure therapy of going into the things that were most difficult for me and not napping during the day and not resting when it became too much, but then, you know, if it became too much going for a fast walk and then going back to it. Um, It was sort of this intense training. I felt kind of like an athlete or something, but after six weeks, I was at a hundred percent. Like I, I don't have any concussion symptoms anymore. I haven't for years. And it just felt to me like something I was going to have to live with long-term. So it really did shift the way I looked at life. Like the idea that you move towards the things that make you uncomfortable and you, you look at them and you, you go towards them instead of away from them. And therefore they kind of lose their power or their ability to sort of collapse you. It was a huge, huge shift for me. I'm sure like everybody, if you said concussion to them, thinks, oh, yeah, I know what that is. It's like a bang on the head. And like honestly, my idea of concussion comes entirely from like Tex Avery cartoon or something. You know, it's like <laughs> seeing stars or little birds flying around your head. But it's, it's an incredibly complicated thing. What actually happens? Uh, you know, what? I, I would be terrible at explaining that. I've had it explained to me really well. And I have, you know, vague images in my head of what it means. But I would do a terrible job of explaining what technically happens. It's basically an energy drain, I believe, from your brain. But yeah, for me, in terms of the symptoms of it, I, you know, I had complete brain fog all the time. It was very hard if someone spoke quickly. I couldn't, if two things were happening in a room at the same time, like say I was trying to cook dinner and someone was talking behind me, that was an impossible thing for my brain to manage. Like everything had to be slow and one at a time. I got massive headaches from too much light and noise. I couldn't multitask at all. And that's hard when you have multiple children <laughs> and work and, um, and a life. I mean, it's, it's hard no matter what, but it was terrifying with small children to not be able to function at that, you know, at the level I should have been. Going back to the, the first essay in the collection then, which sort of talks about First of all, you're cast in a production of Alice in Wonderland when you're a child. And as an aside, I was completely unaware that it was a place called Stratford in Canada. (laughs) And of course, obviously, it's going to be a centre of theatre. Of course it is. But um, but there you go. But so yeah, so you're cast in this in this, you know, quite prestigious production of Alice in Wonderland in Stratford in Ontario. And um, you talk about what's now become sort of familiar, this weird dynamic between, you know, Lewis Carroll stroke Charles Dodson and Alice Little, who was the little girl he was in love with that he wrote the stories for. And your relationship with your father in the period of time when you were living together after your, 
after your mother had died. And then basically what comes into that as well is this sort of diagnosis of scoliosis that you get that sort of manifests this intense stage fright that you have that basically stays with you forever. But yeah, tell us something about about where this essay came from. Yeah, so this was a story for me had so many complex threads that I just had not pulled apart and and was terrified to. I mean, this was like a very strange period in my life. And and for sure, this was the hardest essay for me to write. I started writing it when I was, I think, 19 or 20. I put it down for 10 years. I started writing it again, I think, either my late 20s or early 30s. And then again, a decade off and then came back to it, you know, in my early 40s. And it was, um, you know, just one of those stories that I don't think I ever will get to the bottom of now that I've written an essay about it, where just so many things were sort of mirroring each other and echoing and in dialogue with each other that were all sort of strands that were very difficult and disturbing in my life. So I had this kind of strange life where after my mother died, you know, I, I didn't really have a parental figure. I lived with my dad, but he was more of a friend and, and didn't do a lot of caring for me as a, as a child in terms of just basic physical needs. And we had this very sort of adult relationship, which was wonderful in many ways and kind of delightful and also really complicated and difficult. And then I was in this play playing Alice being treated not as a child when she goes through the looking glass and having things demanded of her and being tested. And there are so many tribulations and trials in that time. And she's sort of thwarted every time she tries to get somewhere. And I was sort of suddenly playing younger than I was um, as I was, you know, my body was growing in puberty and also my spine was twisting into a 60 degree curve with scoliosis. And there were sort of echoes in that play, you know, the relationship between Dodgson and Liddell is played by the white knight and with Alice. And then that sort of echoed my relationship with my dad. And I was having this kind of epic breakdown, which took the form of stage fright that I was terrified to go on stage and it got worse and worse until, you know, it really did um, come to a head, but it was just all of these very strange threads in my life at that time that were kind of weaving themselves together into this tangle. And it was a story that I just, you know, even in my thirties, like I couldn't really talk about it. Like it was very hard for me to tell that story without shaking. And so that was one of the ones that I thought I, I have to finish this story. Um, And I did not enjoy it, but I also loved the feeling of getting to the end of it finally, and finally sort of telling it and expressing what I do understand of it. But I I think it is, I think with all of the most sort of um, impactful stories of our life, I don't think you ever really get to the bottom of it. Like, I don't think you finish. Um, So I feel like that essay is sort of in process of, of talking about and untangling some of those threads, but I don't think it's conclusive. And I, I don't think it ever will be. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Sarah Polly, and we're talking about her book, Run Towards the Danger. And Sarah, we were just talking about you being cast in as Alice. And um, in the book, you talk about a TV series, The Road to Avon Lee, that you were in, and your experiences filming The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, which people might have seen because that story was in The, um, in the Guardian over here a, a few weeks ago. What comes out of all of these is why on earth anybody would want their child to be an actor and to go through <laughs> the conditions of filming and so yeah so just let's just talk about that why would they I mean it just seems like a horrible experience yeah I mean I don't think parents know that and I, I think it's really hard to know what a film set is like unless you've been on one for a long period of time I mean I think that I used to have a lot of judgment for people who let their kids be in film and television I have less so now do I think it's a good environment for kids? Generally, no. And I think uh, I think it's also harder to protect your kid than you think it's going to be because it's very difficult, no matter how much of an advocate you are for your kid and how good a parent you are, to stop a production of you know hundreds of adults and millions of dollars being spent and just grind it to a halt because your kid's a bit uncomfortable. But actually, that is the job of being a stage parent. It is, you know, the job of being a parent is to advocate for your kid, no matter how difficult it is, you know, if they are in a difficult situation. I just think it's not an environment designed for kids. Like, I mean, I think if we lived in a society where we were like, okay, you know, kids can work, fine. But we've actually sort of made a decision as a society or as a culture that kids shouldn't work and childhood should be a somewhat as much as possible protected space for not taking on adult concerns. So if you put a kid in an environment that is not designed that way and doesn't have people in it that have displayed a particular interest or, you know, had any education in dealing with children, things are going to go screwy. You know, like that's just sort of what it is. Now, my experiences are really extreme, but even the less extreme ones, I had very few positive experiences 
in retrospect as a kid on set. Now at the time I would have told you everything was great. And I don't think kids can necessarily be trusted (laughs) to tell the truth or to even have a handle necessarily on how something's impacting on them in terms of articulating it in the moment. Some kids are better than others at that. And some kids also don't want to protect their parents and other people around them from knowing how negative things are. So I would say, you know, I have, as a director, had kids on my sets in very small parts and in very kind of limited controlled ways. I think for the most part, I've been able to make it an okay experience, some better than others. But even with the experience I've had and with my hyper focus on it, I'm not sure it's been worth it. I'm not sure it's been, you know, I can't be certain it's been a positive experience. I won't know till I talk to those kids when they're 30. So I just think it's like, yeah, I mean, it's, I I certainly know the tension of it. Like I have an older kid right now who really wants to act and really wants to act professionally. And I sort of funnel that energy into kids theater groups and clubs and musical theater summer camps. And there are ways to express yourself creatively where you're not in a professional environment designed for adults. Clearly there are going to be, you know, films, written stories told that have children in, need to feed to children. And, you know, you've mentioned a couple of times in your own career when you, you have cast children, but on a more uh, bigger budget, big story level, Hollywood level sort of thing, how can directors be better to the children that they are casting? I think if there's a kid on your set, it has to be your absolute first priority. And I think you actually have to say to yourself that day that if I don't get the shots I'm planning on getting, if I don't get the scene very well, that's okay. As long as the kid has a good day. Like, I actually just think that's your responsibility. If there's a child in a working environment that they probably shouldn't be in anyway, I think you kind of have to drop everything else at the door. It's easier said than done. I've now experienced what that's like to sort of put that in your head and how many challenges there are to that in terms of the logistics of a shooting day. So there's that. I think the director has to take full responsibility and accountability for the experience of the child. There have to be constant check-ins. And I think even if someone's mildly uncomfortable or exhausted, they just go home. But also directors can't be trusted and also producers can't be trusted because ultimately most of them their priority will be the end product of the film, not the experience of the people working on that set. So I think there just has to be, have to be incredibly strict protocols in place. And, you know, there are different standards in different countries. I think the UK is actually quite good as far as I know, but I think having a union representative on set at all times within, you know, view of the kid uh, who's specially trained with kids and also to advocate for kids and who has no issue shutting down a production at a moment's notice. Um, I think that's really important because I just think it's a lot of pressure on parents who may not have enough experience in the film industry to feel the agency to go shut down a production if there's something going wrong. I think directors and producers are distracted. I think having an independent person there at all times, no matter how small the part is of the kid, is essential. One of the parts of the book that I, I most enjoyed, also thinking back to the to the idea of memory, is actually one of the the sort of lighter parts of it, where you you and your husband and children take an impromptu trip to Prince Edward Island, which is the um, the site, if not the actual location for your uh, for the the stories of the Road to Avonlea series that you were in. Tell us something about that that trip. Yeah, I mean, it was an amazing trip. And it's funny because like I'm talking a lot about all the traumas in my book, but I, I think also the book for me is about recoveries. Like it's about things moving and shifting and not being held so tight as these traumas. 
And for sure, that essay for me does that more than any of them where, you know, yeah, it was not a good experience being on that show for six years when I was a kid. And, and I had this kind of cynicism about it and Prince Edward Island. And I ended up going on this family trip with my kids when they're very little to Prince Edward Island and had this kind of beautiful trip. And it was sort of returning to the site of, it was emblematic of, you know, so much that had gone wrong when I was a kid and just having this completely different experience of it and sort of rediscovering the joy of it and the innocence of it. And even of those books through the eyes of my kids and of this sort of like beautiful kind of sun swept family vacation on a beach, like, you know, it was just like that feeling of a memory moving of like the title of the essay is dissolving the boundaries and just the idea that, you know, these stories that we kind of hold hard and tight with these sharp edges can kind of dissolve into something else, become more vague, become more fluid, become more ambiguous in a way that I think feels like a kind of moving beyond of whatever has been, you know, whatever hard story you've sort of been weaving so tight for so many years to make sense of yourself can kind of like just loosen a little bit. It was just an amazing experience. The opposite end of the scale of that, in terms of heaviness, there's a, a chapter where you talk about the um, the Jan Hameshi trial, um, your own violent assault at his hands when you were a teenager. And I think what's really fascinating in this chapter is how you raise this idea that like, we all know that women going through rape or sexual assault trials have a really torrid time. And obviously, you know, that's unacceptable in itself. But you talk about this this idea that in terms of, again, how memory works and how people behave in the aftermath of an assault, whether or not that's, you know, yourself. You talk about using that story as, you know, as a fun story to tell at a party or people, you know, having email correspondence with him afterwards or yourself having, you know, kind of continuing to have a professional relationship in terms of interviews, women talking to each other about their own experiences and about how to deal with that, and how all of that is entirely anathema to the court setting, which just demands truth and nothing but the truth. And how can we do that better? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things that people seem to be understanding more and more, but was really misunderstood for so long, is it's how women, when they've been through a traumatic experience, with this, you know, this kind of traumatic experience, the efforts and the lengths that a lot of women will go to normalize it, to make it okay, to try to like frame it as something other than what happened in order to not live with that trauma out of fear, out of a sense of like not wanting to live with the sort of detrius that comes out of an experience like that. And so it does lead to all kinds of stuff that can seem really confusing to the outside eye and certainly confusing on a stand where, you know, the idea of what is a truth and what is not truth is so sort of, I don't want to say rigid, but it's like, it doesn't allow for the messiness of what the actual experience is. And, you know, I think out of a thousand women that are sexually assaulted, 950 will not come forward. And I think they don't come forward in part, or some of them, at least for reasons like mine, which is that, yes, I had friendly encounters with him afterwards. I was on his radio show. I was like, you know, telling the story as this funny party story of a bad date, eliminating some of the most horrific details, all of that. I knew if you put me on a stand, it's just going to look so inconsistent and bewildering. So that there was sort of a very clear decision for me. There's no way I can come forward. I look like a flake. The problem is most women do in these situations. Like you're very rarely going to find a perfect witness who 
did all the right things and ran and screamed and went to the cops and told someone right away and knew, you know, used the word assault. Like it's just not something that generally happens. It's much messier than that and much more confusing than that. I mean, I know somebody, this amazing psychologist, Lori Haskell, who sort of specializes in these kinds of cases, who talks a bit about, you know, after a car accident, you don't expect the person to remember, you know, what shirt the other driver was wearing, what color the other car was, like who was standing there, who wasn't to have this sort of perfect memory of everything around their surroundings. But you do expect women in a sexual assault case to have those details, right? Or they're lying. So I kind of in writing this essay wanted to lay myself bare and go, okay, what if I was to cross-examine myself? It doesn't look like a particularly pretty clean picture of somebody telling the truth of the capital T, but it happened. And I think that's the experience of the majority of women I've spoken to who've had an experience like this. It's just messy. There's inconsistencies in the way you've told the story, in the way you've remembered certain details around it. It doesn't make the fact of what happened untrue. But I think we're still developing a language and an understanding around this that's very like nascent. Just one more thing then, and I'm not sure how much of this you're going to be able to talk about, but um, I've interviewed Miriam Taves a couple of times on the show. I love her work, and I'd be really interested to talk about what's going on with women talking, why you decided to adapt that. Yeah, it's um, it's finished, and it's coming out in December, in North America at least. And it, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I fell in love with the book, and I think I'm starting to realize like anything where I feel like I have to make it and spend years of my life inside a story, it's because I don't 100% know what's drawing me to it. It's just this obsession and needing to get to the bottom of it. I think that she does an incredibly powerful job in that book of having a conversation around power and violence against women and what kind of world we want to create, not just what kind of world we want to you know, destroy. And like how do how a conversation happens around that that's nuanced and that allows for different personalities and differences of experience and of opinion. And it's just, you know, it's sort of like the opposite of a conversation on social media, you know, like, and I just was so, it felt like a dagger reading that book. Like it was so potent for me and it just felt so illuminating and thrilling. And so I was just so excited to get to walk around inside that conversation, inside that book for a few years. I really can't wait to see it. So I've been talking to Sarah Polly. We've been talking about her book, Run Towards the Danger, Confrontations with a Body of Memory, which is out in the UK from September Books. Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.